second Samuel chapter two. Second Samuel chapter two, the dawn of David's reign. Okay, let me pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come gather together uh, with our with our local covenant community to worship the strength and the blessings that come when we do that. And uh, we thank you for your word how you meet us in our specific needs through your word. Pray that you would fuel our hearts, not only through the stories and the testimony that we heard, but through the word of God. And build up your people, build up our faith, that we might follow you and live in faithfulness to you. Thank you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... Um, we studied 1 Samuel last year, and uh, if you were keeping up, uh, we went through 1 Samuel and then uh, looked at 2 Samuel chapter 1 and then stopped there because uh, chapter 1, 2 Samuel chapter 1 was, so end of chapter, end of 1 Samuel is when Saul died, and then 1 Samuel is when David heard about Saul's death, and then we stopped there. And then uh, we took a long break over the summer, and then recently we've been looking at Luke and some par parables, and then now we're going to come back to, to this narrative. And, uh, and so hopefully you enjoyed it last year for those of you that were here, the study of it, and then we'll continue it. Uh, and this will largely be about David's kingship. And now he's going to take the throne. It's going to be about his kingship, and we can learn a lot of good lessons, I think. From that. Um, so just to kind of uh, very briefly think through and recap some of the things that we talked about, Saul was the first king of Israel, but he was disobedient to the Lord, and he was persistent in his disobedience to the Lord, and so the Lord rejected Saul as king, and he replaced, God replaced Saul with David. But the thing is, David's kingship didn't happen right away. David was anointed to be the king in 1 Samuel chapter 16. That's when David was a young boy. But there was a long gap between then, his anointing, and 2 Samuel chapter 5, in a few chapters from now, when he will actually take the throne. So now, in, in between that time, David largely had to flee from Saul, Saul who was out to kill him because of his jealousy for David. Saul eventually dies in battle at the hands of the Philistines. At the end of 1 Samuel, David hears of Saul's death, mourns for him, and that's where we are now in chapter 2. So after all of those events, we now expect David to start his reign, right? Because Saul is gone. What's the natural thing to happen? David should begin his reign. But it doesn't happen that way. There are still people who want to seize this opportunity. Now with Saul gone, they see this as an opportunity for their own personal gain. So even now, the road to the throne and kingship is not easy for David. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter. 
Okay, so the plan is this. It's a long story, but I'm going to go through the story first. Um, it's going to feel a little bit laborious. Because we're going to go through the entire story first. We're going to read it. And then we want to talk about some lessons after that. So please follow with me as we go through the entire 30-some verses. Okay, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up, David said. To which shall I go up? He said, he said to Hebron. David is currently in a city called Ziklag, which was a town in Philistine territory at the time. And the Lord directs him to go to Hebron, and that is supposed to be now the initial place of his reign, Hebron. Verse 2, so David went up there, his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. They lived in the town of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Um, like we said, David was already anointed king over Israel by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. But now the people of Judah anoint David king over Judah really as a confirmation. It's not nullifying the previous anointing because that was real and God did that. It almost as a confirmation of God's choice of David for king. Verse, continuing on in verse 4, when they told David, uh, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. This place, Jabesh Gilead, was not in Judah. Okay, so remember, the men of Judah came and anointed him. This is not in that region. It's actually a place that had been loyal to Saul. Uh, so where, where it says here, let your hands be strong and valiant, uh, another translation, NLT says, I ask you to be strong and loyal, I ask you to be strong and loyal subjects like the people of Judah. So it seems like David is showing them kindness and just basically asking them who are not in Judah for their loyalty. David is treating them like a good shepherd would and really trying to bring all of God's people together. Verse 8, but Abner, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, Ish-bosheth, Ish 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 the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So it seems like Abner was this powerful man in Saul's camp, commander of the army. Three of Saul's sons died with Saul in battle, but one remained. And so um, Abner sets him up as king over Israel to oppose David. Ishbosheth, verse 10, Saul's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. The time that David was king over Hebron, over the house of Judah, was seven years and six months. So because of Abner's actions, there's a delay in David's reign over Israel by about seven years. Verse 12, Abner, son of Nun, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. 
And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the, servant of, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down one side, one on the one on one side of the pool, other on the other side of the pool. So Abner comes basically to, to challenge David's kingship, and Joab, who will eventually become the commander of David's army, is there to oppose him. So Abner and Joab now face off in this battle. Verse 14, Abner and Joab, Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. Joab said, let them arise. Verse 15, then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for, ben for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of Saul. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Verse 17, the battle was very fierce that day. Abner and his men of Israel were beaten before the servants of Saul. So I guess to avoid a full-on battle, they do this 12-on-12 battle, which ends in a draw. And so then that turns into this full-on battle, and they, the two sides fight. Verse 15, the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now, Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle means he ran very fast. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, is it you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. Okay, so I don't know exactly how this is happening. So I guess um, Abner and his men were kind of defeated, and so they're retreating, they're running, and this person, Asahel, is chasing after Abner, and I guess maybe they're having this conversation while they're running, or maybe they stopped and they're taking a break and they're having this, we don't know, but that's what the exchange that takes place. Verse 21, Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Esahel would not turn aside from following him. Abner said again to Esahel, turn aside from following me, why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? We don't know exactly what the relationship was between Abner and Joab, uh, but obviously Abner does not want to harm Esahel for the sake of Joab. Verse 23, but he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there, died where he was. And all who came to the place where Esahel had fallen died stood still. So Abner reluctantly reluctantly struck down Asahel in battle. Verse 24, Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah. 25, the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. So I guess our, uh, Abner's army retreated, but then they were able to regroup, and now they faced off for a second time in this other location, verse 26, then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Joab said, as God lives, if he had not spoken, surely the men would, have, would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers till the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, all the men stopped pursued, and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. So it seems like Joab came to realize 
that more death is inevitable if he continues the pursuit. So he stops the pursuit and ends what seems like really was a pointless battle. Verse 29, and Abner and his men went all that night through Rabbah. So, so Abner returns uh, back to his location. Verse 30, Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. When he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. Verse 31, but the servants of David had struck down uh, of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. Okay, so it's kind of a, a lopsided, um, more of a victory for, for Joab and his army. 32, they took up Asahel, buried him in the tomb of his father, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night. The day broke upon them at Hebron. Okay, so that's the story. I hope you're still with me. I want to look at a few lessons from this story. First, David depends on the Lord. David depends on the Lord. Um, back in verse 1, after this, after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. Remember that this is a, a really important time for David. David had been fleeing from Saul for many years, but Saul's gone now. So because Saul's gone, David is supposed to be king. So what should he do now? He's been fleeing all this time. Saul's gone. So what should be his next step? He does not know. This is really new territory for him. So David inquired of the Lord. He seeks the Lord's guidance. Shall I go up? Go up. Where should I go? Go to Hebron. It seems like David is really dependent on God. He's really asking God for each step that he needs to take. No idea what to do. God, I need your, your, your step. Not only, but, you know, but every single step, I need you. So he inquires of the Lord, and he finds that the Lord is guiding him in every step. Notice that David does not relocate himself, thinking about the best political strategy that he can, he can take, right? It would be very understandable for me, it would be very understandable if David went somewhere based on his own wise calculations. For example, which city is the most central location to rule from out of the entire land? What's the most strategic place? Or which city is the most fortified city where I can be secure, where I can build my kingdom? Or where am I the most popular? Where can I find people who will be most loyal to me? It's understandable to me because those are the very questions that I'd be asking if I was in his shoes. But he doesn't do any of that. He goes to Hebron simply based on his obedience to God. Lord, where do you want me to go? Go to Hebron. So he goes. Goes trusting that God knows what's best for him. That God is leading him every step of the way. It's kind of like when I was uh, getting ready to plant our church. I asked myself, where can I go? And the, honestly, these are some of the questions I asked. 
Where can I go to plant a church where the church will not fail? Right? Where will planting a church be like, I mean, not that it's going to be easy, but where, where will it be not so difficult? So basically, where, 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 where's like the best possibility of chance of like succeeding in this church planting endeavor? And of course, there are other factors that were involved, uh, but honestly, that, those are some of, at least some of the thoughts that were in my mind. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, like, why did you choose Minneapolis? I mean, to be honest, that, that's not the kind of stuff I would put on our church website. Oh, yeah, I was thinking, where can I not fail? You know, like, stuff like that. But those are some, some thoughts. Or maybe for some of you, like, you ask yourself, like, what school, like, you're, you're getting ready to go to college, and you're in high school. Where, where should I go to college? Maybe you ask, where should I go? What school should I apply to to have the best chance of succeeding in my life, to have a great career? And that's why you ended up here, you know? Because what other school offers a better education, right? Or maybe you can ask yourself, like, where can I go? Like, what are the best chances of me, like, getting married? What are my chances of getting married here? And you look around. Oh, man, the chances are not that good. (laughs) So what city should I move to? So I can have the best chance of getting married. Um, I mean, I'm just kind of uh, joking around about it. But the point is this. You see, in all of these situations, it's really difficult to dissect a person's motive, right? Because the heart is so deceptive. Am I trusting God in this? Am I really doing God's will in this? Or am I following my own desires? Only God knows. Only God knows if a heart is truly surrendered to God, to following God's word versus trying to fulfill our own desires. But that's, but that's often what we do. Like David could have prayed about it and then moved somewhere other than Hebron because that would have been a better city to locate, relocate for a king. And then later on, he could have said, God led me here because after all, I prayed about it. And that's often what we do in our lives, regardless of what our thinking process was. Oh, God led me to this. This was God's will. Because after all, like I inquired of the Lord, I prayed about it. Regardless of what the, the process was and what was going on in our minds and in our hearts. You see, anyone can say, I want to live doing the will of God. But real, deep surrender in the heart is a very challenging thing. And I think at least that's what we see here, at least in this part of David's life, where he trusts and obeys the Lord, really demonstrating what Israel's king is supposed to be like. David depends on the Lord. Secondly, Abner opposes the throne. Abner opposes the throne. Okay, so it's interesting. Like, So that's kind of the end of David's part in this chapter. The rest of this chapter is taken up by Abner and Joab. And um, the rest of the story that we just read is kind of challenging to process because the author does not tell us Abner and Joab's intentions and their motives. Uh, verse 8, But Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, 
the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and these other regions and all Israel. So it's pretty clear that Abner was the driving force behind this opposition. He's the one that said Ishbosheth, king over Israel, even though he had no right to. Right? Verse 9 says, he made him king. I mean, who is Abner to actually make someone king? But that's what he did. And he did this being fully aware of God's choice of David as king. Because in the very next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 9, it says, and this is Abner talking, God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. So it seems like David... Uh, so Abner was fully aware of what God's intention was and what God's plan was. But it seems like Abner has some sort of personal agenda, and that's why he's going against the will of God. So at this point, at least, Abner is clearly the bad guy, right? But the thing is, in the very next chapter, Abner and Ishbosheth they have a falling out, and Abner switches sides. And he comes to David and offers his support. And that's why he says this in verse, uh, verse 9. Like he's going to take David's side. So then in chapter 3, Abner becomes a, uh, the good guy. Joab, on the other hand, looks like the good guy in this chapter. Um, in verse 13, it says, And Joab... This, is, this should be verse, chapter 2. This is chapter 2, verse 13. It says, Joab, um, servant of, servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And so he's called the servant, servant of David. So he must be a good guy because he's on the right side. But then now Joab in the next chapter, spoiler alert, if you don't, don't want to know, close your ears. Okay? Joab murders Abner in cold blood to avenge his brother's death. So the good guy actually turns out to be bad guy. And uh, Solomon later on, in 1 Kings chapter 2, Solomon, David's son, says that Abner was more righteous than, than Joab. So, I mean, think about this. The bad guy becomes a good guy. Good guy becomes a bad guy. And to make matters even more complicated... These two engage in this pointless battle where 24 men die. And in all of this, David is absent. David is not mentioned at all in any of this conflict. We don't know why David is absent, but we do know that David would not harm Saul's son. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 21, this is Saul speaking, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. So if it was up to David, I don't think any of this stuff would have happened. So maybe David is unaware of what Abner and Joab are doing. We don't know for sure. So obviously, there, now it's clear that there's a lot that this text does not address. So when we start thinking, like, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Like, why are they doing this? What's going on here? It's really difficult to figure that out. So I think asking that question, who's good, who's bad, 
I think that's the wrong way to go, but it does seem like it is a story of sinful men trying to leverage for power apart from what God is doing. Apart from what God is doing, how he's at work, and what he's trying to accomplish, there are these characters with their own agendas trying to do what they want to do. But despite all this, God was at work. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So, I mean, think about that. There's so much drama in this story. You can imagine all the different private conversations that took place between the different characters, unspoken motives, their alliances being made, their confrontations, there's killing, there's revenge. Abner, Joab, playing their part sinners with all kinds of hidden motives, acting according to their agendas, but through it all, God was at work accomplishing his purposes to bring David to the throne. We see a lot of crazy things happening in our world today. I mean, you turn on the news, or you click on the news, and there's so many crazy things happening in the world today. Now, I, just uh, a comment about, I think there are two wrong ways to go when we approach the events of our world today. One error, I think, is to not care at all about what we hear in the news. Some people take that approach. Why should I care? I mean, that's like the world, and the world is temporary. and That's not really God's kingdom. So I'm not going to think about those things. I'm not going to focus on, on those things. I'm just going to focus on loving me some Jesus, right? That's all I'm going to do. Right? Just go to Bible study, make disciples, pray to God. That's all I'm going to focus on. Now, going to Bible study, making disciples, those are good things, but we need to realize that God has called us to this particular time in this particular place. Like, God has placed us here in this world where events are taking place. And it is this world where he is accomplishing his purposes in human history. So we need to be aware of what's going on around us so that we can be a part of what God is doing in this world. So we need to care. The other error, I think, is to be to be overly concerned or solely concerned with what we hear in the news today. Because we see Abners and Joabs in the world today doing all kinds of crazy things. And focusing on that can lead to many ungodly emotions like anger, despair, or even self-righteousness which is ultimately not fruitful. So rather, I think a healthy perspective is, as one missiologist put it, to hold a newspaper in one hand and to hold the Bible in the other. And to have that healthy, balanced perspective. We care about what's going on in the world, but we understand that it is God who is sovereign over human history. And we understand that he uses sinful people and all kinds of crazy things, human dramas that are going on, 
to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And I think that same perspective is a perspective that we need to have in our own lives. Meaning this, let me ask you this, what are you? Are you a good guy or a bad guy? Are you a good girl or a bad girl? Are you a good guy or a bad guy? Oh, I'm neither. Okay, then are you a good girl or a bad girl? If we're honest, we're probably a little bit of both. We have our good days, our bad days. You do some things with good motives, and we do a whole lot of things with some bad motives. So that's why we're good at creating all kinds of unnecessary dramas in our lives. You don't feel like you're doing that because it's, it's still September. You just began the school year. Relationships haven't really gotten messy yet. You just wait. We do a whole lot of things with bad motives, create all kinds of dramas in our lives, because that's what people do. That's what sinners do. But through it all... God is at work in our lives to finish what he began in us. And all our messiness and all our crazy dramas, God is still at work accomplishing his purposes. So what that means is we should be careful not to give too much credit to ourselves when things work out well for us. Because we see here, God can use even bad motives to accomplish righteous purposes. It also means that we shouldn't get too down on ourselves either because we really can't ultimately derail God's purposes for us with our sins. That's what we see because we see a sovereign God working through all kinds of drama and deception and human sin to accomplish his plan. Um, okay, one application before we finish. Um, verse 7, it says, now therefore let your hands be strong. This is David speaking to the people of Jabesh Gilead. Be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David appeals to the people of this city, this area, and tries to unite them under his kingship, which is ultimately, his kingship is ultimately God's kingship over Israel. So he tries to unite them because that was God's plan for Israel. Um, but there's division, right? There's division in this story. There's division in this passage. Abner and his followers enthroned Saul's son. Joab and his servants uh, and the servants of David followed David. And each side thinks it should be this way. They see the situation from their own perspective, their own personal agendas, and for whatever reason, they fail to see what God is doing and how the nation of Israel under one king is supposed to be a part of God's plan, not only for them, but for the entire world. They fail to see that. The application that I want to make from that is this. It's so easy to divide. It's so easy for sinners 
to divine because we all have our own perspective. We all come from our different viewpoints, and we have our different needs. Even in our church, we have, I mean, I guess we always categorize it like this. We have students, we have young adults, we have married people, and then we have now married with children. So, I mean, like, we're not saying you're not a young adult if you're married, that you're an old, we're not saying that, but we're just kind of like categorizing it like that just to kind of put people somewhere. And I, I guess everyone kind of falls into one of those in our church, right? You're a student, young adult, married, married with children. And it's easy for us to want to separate ourselves with people who are common to us because it's just easier. It's easier to divide. So that's why we have like our student groups, small groups, like young adult groups. And over the summer, we have married groups and, and things like that. We have uh, students have their own student um, Facebook group. If you're not a part of it, you can join it. Right? And then young adults saw that and go like, why can't we have our own Facebook group? So it's just always easier for, to divide and to, to kind of be with our own, like people who are common to us. But, but the thing is, there's something that God is doing that involves everyone together that's not immediately visible to us. So even though it's not natural for us, there's value in uniting and believing that God is doing things through that uniting and coming together uh, in, that, in that perspective, that uniting is central to what God is doing, that God has a purpose and intention in that, even if it's not easily uh, something that we can be aware of, something that we can see. And that's why I think having an event like Olympics that we had yesterday has value coming together. Like, why don't we just only do it for students? And I was thinking about this. Like, some of our young adults are now, like, when our church started, like, most people were, like, in, uh, it was a rarity for people to be, like, over 30. Now, like, we have people over 40. And our church is, like, 10 years, almost 10 years old, right? Is it reasonable for 40-year-old men to come out and prance around the field with 18-year-old children competing for the same prize? I thought about that. I was like, there's a part of that thought that's a little ridiculous. So then how are we, like, are we to continue to do this? So that 10 years later, when now our people are 50 years old, we're still asking them to come out to Olympics and run around with 18-year-olds? How about when people become 60? And, uh, you know, like they have hip problems and, and joint problems and, are they to still compete in these events? So there's a little bit of like a part of me that's like, there's part of this that's, that's kind of ridiculous. But at the same time, we realize that there's value in uniting and coming together as a church because we don't do that too often. Because something, like something, things that God is doing involves uniting and coming together, and God is using that in his church to do his work. I mean, specifically, like, 
who knows? Like, who can work out all the details of exactly what God is doing through, you know, this relationship or, or, or things like that? But we believe that, and we want to try to unite. And that's why we're going to try something new this year, and that's this. Each small group, starting this year, will have a sister small group. I don't know why we call it sister small group, but uh, sounds better than brother small group. Okay? <laughs> Each small group will have a sister small group. We have student small groups, young adult small groups, and not enough mixed small groups. And that means most of the people that you get close to throughout the year are people that are like you. So we're, what we're going to try to do is we're gonna match one student group with one young adult group. And you'll be sisters. And uh, what that means is sometimes you'll have Bible study together. Sometimes you'll have activities together. And the hope is through that, we'll come together and care for each other. And it'll become a means through which God accomplishes his purposes. So details to come. Yesterday... One of my sons went with me to the Olympics, and uh, in the morning before we left, he microwaved the croissant to eat before he left. Uh, he ate half of it and uh, brought the other half with him in the car in a Ziploc bag, and uh, he left it. He forgot it. He didn't need it. He left it in the car. Um, after the Olympics event, we all went home, and uh, later, a couple hours later, I went back out to go to my office, and, uh, and there it was, the half croissant in my car. So uh, it's food, so I took it with me, and I said, oh, I'm going to be hungry later. So I took it with me to, to eat later on when I got hungry. So that's what I did. Later in the evening, got hungry. I opened the Ziploc bag, took out the croissant, took a bite, and it was not the soft, and tender and juicy croissant that it had been in the morning. What happens when you microwave something and leave it? It turns hard and stiff. That's exactly what had happened to this croissant. But I still ate it because I was hungry. Okay. Um, the point is this. Um, I really like studying biblical narratives. Story, biblical stories, like this story in 2 Samuel chapter 2, because they contain stories of real people, real people who either obeyed God or went against God, and we see how God worked in those real-life situations. And digging into those stories and understanding it and relating to it from my own sinful heart and being able to see God is like eating a, a warm croissant in the morning. How many of you, let me ask, have uh, Bible app notifications that come to you with uh, daily verse reminders? Okay, that's good. I mean, that's, that's fine. Doing that is better than, like, nothing, right? But to be honest, if that's all you're doing, just meditating on a random verse that shows up on your screen, 
for five minutes. Honestly, that's really like eating a microwave croissant. Because it doesn't really nourish and feed you in a deep way that transforms your life. And I pray that as we dig into these passages throughout the semester, it would be a way for us to eat the word of God in a way that builds up our faith. Lord, I need to learn to surrender to you more. And I see that through this passage. I need to see the ways that you're working in my life despite how I feel because of my sin. I need to change how I see other people, the ways that I, many times in my motives, I see that I'm being deceptive in my motives. We need to dig deeper into these passages and see the Word of God in a way that relates to our lives so that it builds up our faith and transforms our lives. I pray that that will happen throughout the semester as we study this narrative and the story of David. Let's pray together. It's amazing when we think about the God of the universe is uh, sovereign over human history. It means there's not a single thing that has happened in history that was a part from his sovereign plan. It's not a single thing that's happening even today in this world that is apart from his sovereign eyes, his sovereign control. There's not a single thing that's happening in our own lives despite my intentions and my hidden motives and all the different things that I do to complicate my life. There's not a single thing that happens apart from his sovereignty and he's using all of that to accomplish his purposes. What that means is he's using it to make me more like Jesus to finish what he began in us. He's using everything to bring Jesus back into this world, to save sinners, and we get to be a part of that plan. Let's uh, open our eyes and uh, surrender our hearts and yield to his sovereign purposes in this world. Let's pray together for a moment and ask that God will continue to reveal himself to us through his word throughout the semester as we study it. I pray that we would become not only the people of God, but a community that comes together to, to be the servants of God. Let's pray together for a moment before we close our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the word of God that's a mirror to our hearts. A lot of times uh, we try to see ourselves in this world as black and white things, good and bad we see that it's not like that because of uh, the deceptiveness of our own hearts. And, uh, thank you that the Word of God points us to the only one who is good to accomplish salvation for us. So help us to trust in Jesus with all of our hearts and give ourselves to you. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together. Um, so so just the bigger picture, and like we said, I think it's just so easy to approach a text like this and feel confused because there's no clear good guy, bad guy. And that's a lot of times how we want to see things. But it's both, you know, like uh, some things that they do good, some things they do bad. This guy who I thought was good turns out to be bad. And then um, but God is working through all of that. And so we need to have a bigger picture to see what God is doing and not get caught up in the particular instances where the bad guy did a bad thing. And I say that because I think that's relevant in our relationships, right? Like your roommate relationships, 
in our marriages. Sometimes um, they're the bad guy and you're the good guy. Sometimes you're the bad guy and they're the good guy. And we do things with bad intentions and like bad motives and selfish things. And sometimes they do selfish things. And sometimes we get caught up on all of those things, uh, trying to justify and trying to make things right. And it just doesn't work trying to live life like that. The better picture is to understand that God is sovereign over everything. He's using everything. And he's redeeming everything. Not only the good, but the bad. To work in my life, to work in, um, in our church, in our marriages, in, in our small groups, in my work relationships. God has a, a plan, intention in all of those things. Okay, so can we do that? Can we take our eyes off of ourselves, people, and look at God? And see the sovereign God over this world trust in him, surrender our hearts to him, try to be more yielded to him. Let's pray that for a moment, and then I'll close this in prayer benediction. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we just pray that you would deepen our faith as we search the scriptures and try to understand the word of God. Help us to see not only ourselves, um, but really see what you're doing throughout human history and how you're working in our lives today because of who you are, your character, and your promises. Help us to see you more clearly through our study of this book. We pray that it would draw us nearer to you, that our hearts would be more surrendered to you, and it would help us to fall in love with Jesus with all of our hearts. Thank you, Lord. Just pray that you would bless our small groups as we continue meeting throughout the semester, receiving the momentum from the Olympics event. Pray that you would use that to help us to care for one another deeply, not only for the people in our small group, but for others other small groups, people who are not like us. Help us to care, become a community, and may that be just a, a great uh, reading ground for blessings to go forth, not only beyond in our church, but beyond our church to others beyond our walls. Thank you, Lord. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this incredible love of, of the Father God, the fellowship and the strength, the power of the Holy Spirit be with you, God's people both now and forever. Amen.